All right, everybody, we will begin. Let me uh, pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, we are um, looking to you this morning for your grace towards us, knowing that um, you are faithful, you are gracious, and um, you tell us even to ask, um, and that you supply all the good gifts that are needed to glorify you. And so we pray this day that you would um, fulfill those promises, that you would give us strength according to your word, uh, that your spirit would strengthen us to walk in your ways, and uh, that we would uh, love one another well. We would show hospitality to those around us, um, welcoming them in your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we do have handouts. If you want one of those, uh, that may be helpful. I think there's some in the back. If you just raise your hand, someone can give you one. And then uh, there's some up on this little entryway area. So we're talking about the the Holy Spirit. Um, We are going to look today specifically at the Spirit's work. So it's kind of a long title, but it's, I need every word in here, so it is what it is. The Spirit's work in the inauguration of the new covenant. So the the word inauguration is, what I'm trying to signify is at the beginning entry point of the new covenant coming onto the scene, okay? Uh, So the Spirit in new covenant believers there's more we're going to talk about, continuing, right? Uh, but, but today, we're just kind of zooming in on the inaugural period of the new covenant. So covenant meaning like um, uh, an agreement, right, where God uh, says, this is what I'm going to do, right? He makes promises. Uh, he, he says what the stipulations are of this agreement. Um, and, and in the Bible, when we're talking these covenants, they deal with salvation, God doing something involving redeeming, saving a people for himself, Okay, so the inauguration of the new covenant. So the Spirit's work in the inauguration of the new covenant. So to help zoom that in so you know what we're talking about, what that means is we're looking in the Gospels and the book of Acts. Because those, those are the books uh, in God's word that correspond to the beginning of the new covenant coming in history, right? Um, so that's what we're looking at. So what we're doing is we're doing right now, and we started it last week, what you might call biblical theology. So biblical theology means we're, we're looking at the storyline of the Bible, uh, the, the history, the way the, the covenants unfold over history, God's promises unfold over history, and we're seeing how it fits together based on that timeline, that storyline, right? Um, so this is different than systematic theology. Systematic theology is where we generally we ask one question, like, so for example, when we began, we looked at Basically, who is the Holy Spirit, right? We need to know something about the person of the Holy Spirit. So we need to know about the Trinity, right? What does it mean to say we have a triune God? Those are systematic questions. Uh, Because what we do then is we go all over the scripture, we look at all sorts of different passages, we tie together all the things we start to understand and, and give an answer to that. Biblical theology is, is it's still answering questions, but it's more like, well, why is it that something, or, or, or what changes between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant in the Spirit's work? Does anything change? So biblical theology does, what one important thing it helps you do is it helps you avoid thinking there are contradictions between what you read in, let's say, uh, Exodus, and then what you read in the Gospels. Now, there are differences that happen, but the explanation for that is we're in a new covenant. You see what I'm saying? In other words, it's factoring in the historical unfolding of God's plan. That's, that's kind of what we're looking at. And so you can, t- you can trace themes through biblical theology, which would be a little different than systematic because you would be saying, okay, as we look through the storyline, how do we see this unfolding through the various uh, epochs of history? 
and what God is doing at this point in redemptive history and then this point in redemptive history and then this point in redemptive history, uh, which is a little different than just saying we're going to kind of go everywhere and find all these things. So both these are useful tools in getting a handle on theology, okay? So we started out kind of systematic. Now we moved into biblical theology. So, so Doug started that last week when we started with the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Covenant, now, uh, we obviously could spend a lot of time uh, looking at these things. In fact, even this morning I was thinking, uh, to some degree, I, we probably would have done a little better to divide this lesson into two. I'm sure Doug felt that way last time too, because he had a lot of information to cover. So may, maybe that's just, you know, pastor spending time in the Word, and you get excited, and you realize more and more things, and you just always, there's always more to say. Um, but, I mean, we probably could have spent a whole session on the Gospels and a whole session on Acts. We're not doing that, um, so this will give you an overview, and we certainly could go deeper. Just just be aware of that. There are whole books written on these topics. Um, okay, so what we're going to look at then is, we, last time we started biblical theology, the Spirit's work in the Old Testament, we saw a couple things. What, what are, what's uh, one or two things we saw that you might remember about the Spirit's work in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament? Came upon people instead of indwelling. Yeah, that's right. So there's not indwelling, in other words, remaining in every single person under the Old Covenant. Every single person in God's kingdom is not indwelt with a remaining spirits remaining in them, right? But we did see the Spirit would come upon certain individuals, uh, usually because of some sort of role they're playing in redemptive history, whether it's a, a king to fulfill a particular role that God has, whether it's Samson as a judge during a particular time, um, whether it's some, even artisans working on certain things related to the temple or tabernacle, Okay, so we, we see the Spirit coming upon, but not necessarily remaining, which is why, so this is going to help you understand, by the way, this biblical theology is important. When you read Psalm 51, Doug pointed this out, but this is helpful. You read Psalm 51, that is a great psalm on repentance, right? You should go to Psalm 51 when you're trying to work through repenting over an issue. But when you read, and take not your Holy Spirit from me, do you understand, do you see why it's important to understand it in the unfolding of biblical history here? When we understand what the Spirit's role was in the Old, the Old Testament, we recognize he came upon kings like David, like Saul. And what happens when the Spirit goes to be with David to empower him to be king? The Spirit leaves Saul. So why is David praying that? He messed up big time. Saul had messed up big time before him, and David is saying, please don't take your spirit from me the way you did from Saul. And so I think what we're seeing is David is truly repentant. Saul was not truly repentant, Right? Um, now, when you come to the new covenant, why do we not pray as we pray repentance? Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me because something has changed in the covenants. We have a new covenant and the spirit indwells every single believer forever. We're going to see that today. Okay. So, um, so yes, so he, he comes upon specific individuals, empowers them for certain tasks, and uh, he regenerates. We're going to talk more about that in a second, just as a reminder, but he did regenerate people giving spiritual life to the spiritually dead, which would be anyone who is actually true, a true Israelite, right? Now, you could have Israelites who are Israelites according just to ethnicity, and not, not all Israel was Israel, were they? We see that. There's was, there was always a remnant. Um, okay, so we're going to look today at the Spirit's work um, of regenerating. So that, that's going to be short because it's just a continuation of what we saw in the old covenant. We're going to see some new things. We're going to see the spirit is going to empower Jesus's messianic ministry. We're going to see another new thing that the spirit indwells believers. And then we're going to look at acts and see a unique thing that the, the baptism of the spirit, uh, as well as something that is um, going to be somewhat tied to the old Testament. And it's going to continue, which is the fact the spirit fills or empowers um, 
ministry. But it's a little different because we're, we're in the new covenant, and so that's going to be a little different. So we'll see, how, we'll see if we get through all this today. Hopefully we do. You have a handout if we don't. Um, so as in the Old Testament, the spirit regenerates the spiritually dead. Uh, Genesis 3. What does God say is going to happen to Adam and Eve if they disobey? You will die, right? You will surely die. Dying, you will die, which is a way of saying you will surely die. Do they die physically as soon as they eat the fruit? No, but it does begin the process of death, right? Physically, they're going to physically die. But I think what we recognize is they immediately spiritually are now dead, right? But it's also clear that Adam and Eve are redeemed by God. You see God making clothes for them, the implication of a sacrifice of an animal. You see Eve is referred to as the mother of all living, which certainly has a physical, obviously a physical importance, but also I would say spiritual importance. Um, we see that it's from their line that the Messiah is going to one day come. It doesn't use all those exact words, but, but as you read the rest of the storyline, you can look back and say, oh, that's what's going on here in Genesis 3. So my point is even there we have a picture of regeneration already has to happen for Adam and Eve, right? They're spiritually dead, and God somehow doesn't use all these words but they're alive to God, right? Uh, in a way that we're going to see Cain is not, right? But Seth is. Um, so we, we get hints of it. I'm not saying that it's as clear there, but we certainly get hints of it. Psalm 87 is an interesting psalm. It, it speaks of um, some who were not born in Jerusalem, which is what? The capital city of the kingdom, right? In the, under the old covenant, which certainly points ahead to future realities and things like that. But it says there, there's, there's people who, they're, they're not born in Jerusalem, but they are born in Jerusalem. What's it talking about? I think it's, I think it's, it's, it's the idea of some sort of regeneration. You weren't born into this kingdom physically, but you were born into the kingdom, right? Um, you get a hint of it in Psalm 119.25, give me life according to your word. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 uses the imagery of circumcision of the heart. Let me read that for you. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. So, within Israel, we're going to have people who have genuinely circumcised hearts, and I think that's the old covenant way of saying regeneration. I think that's what's going on there. This work continues. Turn to John chapter 3. This work continues. Doug looked at this last week. I'll briefly review it. Uh, continues when the new covenant is coming on the scene. The context, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus. He's a religious leader, so he should know the Old Testament. And Jesus is telling him that a person must be born again, which is the, that's the, fa uh, the, the cl maybe clearer way for us of explaining what do we mean when we say regeneration. Born again, that's what we mean. Born spiritually, right? Okay, so John 3, 5 through 8, Jesus answered Nicodemus when he's, he's figuring, trying to figure out how can a person be born again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, I think it's referring to Ezekiel 36, by the way, I don't think it's referring to water baptism, uh, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So, who enters the kingdom without being born again? No one. And that was true under the Old Covenant as well. I think no one here does mean no one, that no one is going to enter the kingdom apart from being born again. And, and part of the way we know this, uh, there's something of this in the Old Testament is because Jesus says, look, you're the teacher, later on in verses 9 and 10, you're one of the teachers of Israel and you don't know these things. So obviously Nicodemus should have picked up on this need for spiritual life, 
right? And that God has to give spiritual life if we're going to be in his kingdom. So the Holy Spirit continues this work in the um, life of the new covenant believer as well. Uh, That doesn't change. Uh, If you want more details on the new birth or being born again, in the Doctrines of Grace series we had, one of the sessions was on being born again. So if that's a new word to you and you have no idea what we're talking about, um, maybe you have a little bit of an idea now. If you need more, go back and listen to that session online. So now let's talk about a unique work. Look at Luke chapter 1. This is unique to the new covenant because as the storyline unfolds, what is happening in Luke? Who has now arrived on the scene? Yep, so we have John the Baptist comes along, and then we have Jesus, who is the Messiah, right? Um, so this is, this is a unique time. Look at Luke 1, 33 through 35. So we're going to see uh, two things here. First, uh, the Spirit brings about the miraculous conception of Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. Okay, so this is one thing the Spirit does uniquely to bring in the new covenant. Verse uh, 31, actually. I'm sorry, back up to 31, I think. I put 33 there, but. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. So context here, this is the angel talking to Mary. He'll be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Good question, right? How is this going to be? This is not like normal standard fare. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, so in light of that, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So how is it that the virgin will conceive? By the power of the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit will cause a miraculous conception is what we're told. And, uh, and, and what's the result? The result is we, we have within uh, Jesus, we have the Son of God, holy son of God, right? This would not have happened had it been a normal birth because everyone since Adam is born in sin, right? So if the son of God is going to be holy when he comes as a man, we have to have something miraculous happen and the spirit is the one who empowers from the very beginning the earthly ministry of Jesus. That's what I'm saying. Uh, The next thing you see is that, the, that Jesus does his work as the Messiah. So Messiah means the anointed one, the promised one, we could say. Um, he's going to empower Jesus' ministry um, as he walks this earth as a man, as he does ministry according to the power of the Spirit. Look at chapter 3 of Luke. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 through 22. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So Jesus is beginning his ministry here. His, um, I mean, in one sense, he's already been doing ministry, right? He's living a perfectly obedient life to the law of God. But in terms of his public ministry as the Messiah, where, where he goes publicly, and starts doing things that say, look, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Right? That message hasn't, hasn't gone forward yet. It doesn't go forward till after these things we're seeing. It's about to happen. What happens? He's baptized and at his baptism, the spirit descends in a visible way. 
And the father says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So we see father, son, and spirit. We see all members of the Trinity involved. But the point is the spirit uh, comes upon Jesus. Now to be clear, this is not Jesus being adopted by God or given Godhood. Like he wasn't God prior to this, right? He is fully God from the beginning. John 1, right? We have the, the son uh, who takes on flesh is fully God. He's with God and he was God from all eternity. So this is, this is not what some cults would say, oh, there's some sort of adoption thing going on here. That's not what's going on, okay? Well, Luke chapter four, so um, let's see. Yeah, Luke chapter four, we see in verse one, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, so after his baptism, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. So we see that the Spirit leads him uh, into his, for, his first um, messianic battle, so to speak, right? He goes. Now, this is significant because, again, if you're following the storyline of the Bible, um, you have Israel, and Israel is referred to in Exodus as my son, right? God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh, let go of Israel, my firstborn son, right? Jesus, so does Israel, and then, and then what happens to Israel? They, they do get released, and where do they end up? And then, not the promised land right away, right? The wilderness. And they are tested. They are tried, tested. And how do they do? They fail miserably, right? Which we would have too, so don't get too cocky. But so they, they fail miserably, right? Um, the son of God, the one to whom in, in this sense we could say Israel pointed to. Although Israel, I'm not saying that Israel is not physical and real. I'm just saying in this sense, there's a pointing ahead. Jesus fills in, stands in the place of God's children who need redeeming. Jesus doesn't need redeeming. He is the son of God. But if we're going to be children of God, we got to be redeemed and he's got to fully succeed where we would fail. So he goes into the wilderness and who's he led by? He's led by the spirit into the wilderness. So what I'm saying is in his humanity, Jesus is, is operating under the power of the, of the spirit. His messianic role, his standing in for you and me is done by the power of the spirit, right? Which is going to get really encouraging when you start thinking, ah, and we have the spirit in us now, Right? The same spirit. Um, okay, so the spirit uh, leads him out there and uh, he succeeds where Israel and, and we fail. He perfectly obeys despite the, in, in spite of the uh, temptations showing he is the one true king. Uh, chapter four, Luke chapter four, verses 14 and 15. He returns back to do more ministry. It says, and Jesus returned in the power of the spirit to Galilee and a report about him went through all the surrounding country. And what does he do? And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he continues. Now he's teaching. Now he's speaking the words of the gospel. Hey, the kingdom is here. The king is here, right? Repent and believe, that type of stuff. He's teaching in the power of the spirit, okay? Um, look at chapter four, verses 16 through 20 now. This is all tied to promises that were made in the Old Testament. Verse 16, he, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, where he'd been raised, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood and read. The scroll of Pro prophet Isaiah was given to him. He enrolled the scroll, found the place where it was written. So listen to this quote. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. So he's just read this, right? That's all he's done so far. He's read it. What does he say it points to though? 
And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. Verse 21, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So all this ministry and the power of the Spirit is saying, look, this is the, I am the one you've been waiting for that the Father sent. Which, by the way, um, Jesus can't just be a good guy. He'd be super arrogant if he is not the Son of God. You realize that, right? I mean, he's not saying, like, I'm just here to tell you the way to God. He's like, I am the way to God. I am the one you have waited for. Like, if I came in the room and said that, you all should get up and leave or stone me or something, right? Jesus can say, so my point, you can't leave Jesus as a good teacher like some people want. Oh, I kind of like some of his teachings, but, you know, I'm not going to follow him or anything. He hasn't left that open to you, right? You're either rejecting him or you're with him. There's no middle ground. Okay. So the point is, this prophecy, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Jesus is saying, this is, this is who I am, and the spirit is bearing witness to that. And, and so, and we read all that stuff about the things he does. We see him doing that in his ministry, don't we? Bringing healing, giving sight to the blind, all these different things he's doing. Again, testifying that he is the Messiah, and he's doing it all by the power of the spirit whom the father anointed him with in his earthly ministry. So, the Father sends the Son in the fullness of time. You see that in Galatians. He has a, there's a unique messianic ministry going on here. Uh, from the miraculous conception of Jesus to being empowered to do the works of the Messiah, we see that the Spirit is in all those things. The Spirit is empowering this. So, what is, what is one thing that is unique in the New Covenant? Well, the Spirit empowers the work of the Messiah. Because why? The Messiah is here. Why is he not doing it in the Old Covenant? Because the Messiah is not on the scene in the Old Covenant. Now he's prophesied, he's foretold. I do think you see, you know, maybe some, some things where Jesus makes appearances, pre-incarnate Christ, things like that. But that, the, him being here, doing the work of the Messiah, comes with when the New Covenant is being inaugurated, right? There's an inauguration going on here. Uh, okay, so that is one thing that's unique. The next thing is the Spirit is given as a paraclete, we'll talk about that word in a minute, to indwell New Covenant believers, um, paraclete. What does this word mean? It gets um, translated various ways in, in various um, translations. Uh, so helper, comforter, advocate. Uh, to some degree, it's, um, it's hard to give one, just one word here. Because this is kind of one of those words that's hard to translate because there's, there, there's kind of a lot of things we could be saying here. One thing is interesting, when you think of comforter, um, it, that, that is... Uh, that, that come side is kind of with, and then fortis meaning strength. So when you think of him being the comforter, this means coming alongside, bringing strength. That's one thing we're talking about. Um, he functions as our advocate, as our helper. So all these things are, are, are summed up in the one transliterated word, paraclete. So paraclete's not an English word is what I'm saying. That's the transliteration, right, of the Greek word. And we can say comforter, we can say advocate, but it's it's kind of... It's kind of like uh, steadfast love. When you read steadfast love, that, that Hebrew word chesed, it's kind of hard to just summarize that with one English word. There's a lot going on there. Okay, so we kind of have a similar thing going on here. Um, so Jesus, look at John 14. Jesus says he's going to send another helper. So Jesus is saying, look, I'm here as, as kind of this helper, comforter role. I'm going to send another helper to come to your aid, an advocate who will be there to aid you. So look at John 14. This is during the farewell discourse. So Jesus is talking to his disciples, getting ready to be crucified. He's kind of giving them some farewell things. You can imagine they're, they're, they're confused. There's perhaps a bit of fear. 
Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth. So who is the another helper here? The spirit of truth, right? That's in, yeah, okay. Whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Okay, so um, can the spirit be with unbelievers in the way he's saying here? No, this, this giving the spirit is gonna be just for those who are, who are believers. Um, so we are talking about the spirit. That's pretty clear. Is the spirit already in them when he's speaking these words according to this text? No, we know that. Because it says what? He, yeah. It says he dwells with you and what? Future tense will be in you, right? Okay. Um, now, uh, th- those, so who's going to receive this? It's, it's true believers. People who belong to Jesus are going to receive this indwelling, remaining, abiding spirit in them, right? Um, the, when he says, if you, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. This, uh, what, what he's saying here is, he's basically saying those who are regenerated, isn't he? Because who loves Jesus and keeps his commandments? Not the natural man, the regenerated man or woman, right? So this, this is not a, um, you work for the spirit. He's saying those of you who are regenerated. And, and by the way, if you are regenerated, you will keep his commandments. Now, not perfectly, but you will keep them. There will be a desire to keep them. And a movement in that direction. So we ought not fool ourselves and think, you know, uh, I'm following Jesus, but I, I'm not going to keep his commandments. That's like saying, like, I trust you, but I don't, right? Um, we can say it all day long, but trust is demonstrated in what we're doing, isn't it? Now, again, we fail. I get that. We fail all the time, but we have the Spirit, and uh, we repent, like we saw in Psalm 51. Okay, so the Spirit's going to be in you. He's not in them at this point. Uh, when is the Spirit going to be in them. When will the Spirit be in them? Look at John 7. John 7, verses 38 and 39. I want you to listen for what Jesus promises and when it's going to happen. Verse 38 of John 7. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay, so what is going to be given? The spirit, right? And when is the spirit going to be given? When Jesus is glorified, right? And we know that because he says, it tells us they don't have the spirit in this way yet because Jesus has not yet been glorified. So what that, the inference then is when Jesus is glorified, they're going to receive the Spirit. I think it's a pretty safe inference to make, right? Um, okay. So, so Jesus is promising life-giving from within, continual life-giving power of God just flowing from within, right? Implanted in you. Like as, as a, a redeemed person, this ongoing flowing power of the Spirit is what is being said. So it's going to happen when he's going to be glorified. Well, when is he going to be glorified? Look at John 12. So when's this going to happen? You probably already know the answer to this, but this points us in the direction. John 12, 23 and 24. Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's pointing ahead to what? His crucifixion. 
and his resurrection, right? I mean, you see that pointed to here because it's got to be not just the dying, but what does the seed do when it dies? It gives life. So I think we have pointed here the resurrection as well. So his death and resurrection are where we see the glorification happening. So we ought not be surprised, turn to John 20, when we read this in John chapter 20. John 20, verses 19 and 22 through 22. This is on the day of his resurrection. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And by the way, that, that kind of harkens back to his farewell address. When you're reading through it before he's crucified, there's a lot of this like, my peace I live, leave with you, right? I'm, I'm going to give you peace. So, so he's, he's coming back. He's been glorified. He's saying, peace be with you, right? When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So in some ways, that harkens back to what? To when Jesus is, is baptized, right? And the Spirit descends on him, and there's, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus is sent out in the power of the Spirit to do the messianic work. And he's saying, I'm sending you to continue this work. And okay, so verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So I think all those connections together are telling us, and then this phrase here, he breathes on them and they receive the Spirit. When do they receive the indwelling Spirit? I think it's here. I think this is where it's at. Now, it doesn't mean that's, this is the only answer theologians give to that, but... I don't really, I don't see how you get around this connection with John 7, right? You have John 7, their spirit is not yet in them. When, when's the spirit going to be in them? When he's glorified. When's he going to be glorified? When he dies and raises from the dead. We see after he's raised from the dead, he comes to them and says, receive the spirit. When you start connecting all those dots, and then you add in those other illusions that I was just pointing out to, where it's, they're about to go carry on the ministry. They need the the filling of the Spirit to continue the gospel ministry that Jesus began, right? Um, it seems to all fit that that's what we have happening here. The indwelling Spirit is given at this point in John 20. Um, so the Spirit, now that we've, the, the new covenant has been enacted. Think about it. When is the new covenant enacted? Jesus' death and resurrection. That's what he's saying. Like at, that, at the, uh, the Passover meal, this is my blood. This is my body. This is the new covenant. And then that, that's the picture the reality comes when he's crucified and then risen. So the new covenant is enacted then. That's when it starts. So again, we shouldn't be surprised that the spirit who's, who's now going to indwell new covenant believers is given when that is complete, when the new covenant is actually enacted. So um, this is different than the old covenant. There was regeneration in the old covenant, but not indwelling. Here we see indwelling. Now, one more question. Why is the spirit given to live in the people of God now. Um, there are probably multiple things we could say about this. Okay, there's probably, it's, I guess what I'm saying is there's probably multiple answers that could be given to this. I'm gonna give you one that I think is, is um, helpful uh, and pretty easy to make clear overall. So why is the Spirit given this way? Um, I mean, for one thing, because this is the way God decided to do it. I mean, that, I guess that's the simplest answer, right? I mean, we're not gonna question God in the way he decides to interact with us in his covenants, Right? He's God, we're not. That's true. Okay, but um, think about it this way. Uh, the realities of the, what, what the Old Covenant pointed to in the temple and tabernacle. What, what's going on in the temple and tabernacle? 
I mean, multiple things going on, but so any anything you think is going on in there, well, anything that you think the Bible says is going on in there. God is, 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 has his presence in the... Yeah. I mean, that's where he's put his place yep. on earth. His presence is there for them to worship. That's right. So, so God's presence on earth in a, in, the, in a special blessing covenantal, hey, you're my people, I'm your God, right? You can draw near to me through sacrifice and you can receive the blessings of walking with me. That presence is in the tabernacle and then temple, right? Tabernacle is the precursor to the temple. That's what's going on in the old covenant. God is everywhere, that's true, right? But his special blessing presence is there, right? Kind of same thing you could say about heaven and hell. I mean, God is everywhere in the sense that he is, there's judgment being poured out on people in hell. It's not that there's no presence of God in that sense, but his blessing presence isn't in hell. His blessing presence is in heaven where his people are. You understand what I'm saying? So you kind of see a similar thing going on. Okay, so, um, so Jesus comes and in John 1, it, it says uh, that, what does it say? Let me see if I can read it. I'm gonna just read it for you. John 1, 14, the word, so who, who's the word? Jesus, right? Um, the word became flesh and dwelt. That is the word tabernacle. He, it tabernacled. The Son of God tabernacles among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, Jesus comes, the Messiah is here. We have a very special, the special presence of God, in, actually in God being enfleshed, is there. That's incredible, right? Now, Jesus dies, is resurrected, and is going to ascend, where is the special blessing presence of God now? The temple is in the believer. We are the temple of God. Right? This doesn't necessarily rule out any sort of future understandings of temple things. But what I'm saying is right now in this new covenant that we're living in, it's pretty clear that we are the temple. And, and that's true both individually, if you're a believer, and corporately together we are the temple of God. Because why? The Spirit of God dwells in us. And it's interesting, if you think about it, in Ezekiel, uh, we see God's presence leave the temple, right? And, and Ezekiel also then goes on to make these promises about how God's Spirit is going to come later. And so what do we see? In the, in the ministry of Jesus, when he's leaving, he does send the Spirit of God to indwell God's people. John chapter 4, when, when Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, she's asking about, you know, are we worshiping in this place or that place? In some ways, we kind of look at that and we laugh and we say that's silly, but that actually was probably, it was a good question, but she, are, she should have already known the answer, right? Um, Samaritans had, had kind of gone, gotten off. She was trying to kind of sort of distract to some degree, but it wasn't like a completely invalid question. Uh, where, where, you know, we, we worship here, you worship there, and, and what does Jesus say? The day is coming, right? You go ahead. When, when we're going to worship, in spirit and in truth. It's not, so much, it's not this mountain, it's not that mountain. It's true believers will worship in the realm of the spirit, the spiritual realm. Wherever, wherever they are, they will worship God. Um, and, uh, and he says something else, I forgot what it was there. But anyway, um, the point is, Jesus is saying that there's this day coming when they will worship in spirit um, and in truth. So I think that's what's happening here. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. I'll just uh, read it maybe for the sake of time. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So there he's talking to individual believers. Where's, where's the temple of the Spirit? It's your body. Your body is now the temple of God. 
you're not God, don't get confused, but you are the temple of God. God dwells in you. Um, <clears throat> 2 Corinthians 6.16, you could also look at 1 Corinthians 3.16, but both these point to the spirit being in God's people as a whole. 16, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Okay, so why is the spirit now indwelling God's people? Because we are the temple. God in the new covenant is not removing his presence. His presence is actually now even further given, isn't it? The new covenant is like, New. I mean, there's amazing things going on in the New Covenant that were not happening in the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant was pointing in that direction. It, the, the presence of God was very much among his people, but this is incredible, and it only can happen because why? The Messiah has come and done his work. And so now we have this happening. So this is why we now are indwelled by the Spirit, because God dwells in us. That's how he dwells among us. And that's God's ultimate goal is to be among his people in a special blessing way. Not like in a needy ultimate goal, like, oh, I need these people. I mean, he loves us, right? He, he wants to be among us because he loves us. That's incredible. No one twisted his arm to love us. And so anyway, so this is incredible that the Spirit would dwell among us. So let me give you some application here real quick before we move on. Uh, the fact that we're the temple, two things. Number one, the gospel light is in us. In the Old Covenant... And this, this explains a little bit more about the difference in the covenants too. In the Old Covenant, you notice there's not really a, um, a, a real like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, great commission. I mean, there is, like Israel is told, like you're going to represent God. Think about how you're living, right? And if you don't, judgment's going to come on you. But there's not a, hey, like go tell the nations. Now, I'm not saying the nations don't get invited in. They do. But it's really more of a like come to Israel and see, right? I mean, you still have other people from different places hearing about the one true God and coming to believe in him. You have Rahab, you have, you know, these other individuals going on. Um, but then we get to the, to the new covenant and it's now a go and tell. The fullness of the message has arrived. The king has come. Go tell the good news among the nations. And think about how important it is that we're the temple, wherever the people of God are, the temple is. You see, when, when, when this is, when God is, is now, the fullness of time has come. The sun has come. The gospel is going. The new day has dawned. The temple has got to be wherever the people of God are. They have to be able to have God's presence. That's not going to happen in a physical temple building. It's going to happen wherever truly regenerated people of God are. So, so you see how this fits with the, what's going on in the covenants. Okay, so, um, so, so one thing is that means um, that's pretty amazing that we are to be the gospel light. As individual Christians and as the church, we have the privilege of representing God to the people around us, to the nations. That's a high privilege and calling. There's also um, a calling with that, and this is the second point under this, we are the temple, is think about how we, as Peter says, we must conduct our lives in holiness and fear, right? Because we have the, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. So we need to grow in walking in the Spirit's ways, not resisting the Spirit, right? Not, we walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And this is an ongoing thing for us. And so we are commanded to do that. So we ought to grow in holiness. We ought to say, Spirit, help me grow. Father, please empower me to walk in the power of the Spirit that you've put in me. Right? And then we look at the Word and we say, what, is, what does it say that it looks like to walk in the Spirit? And then we pray about the things we see in there. God, help me put on whatever, love, patience, right? Peace. Um, the other thing I'll point out is we have comfort. 
So this is the second main application. We have comfort because the spirit is in us. When we face temptation, when we face sin, when we are fearful or anxious, we have the spirit in us to help us fight temptation, to help us repent when we fail to fight temptation well, uh, and, and to help us face fear and anxiety. I mean, think about this. The farewell discourse is when Jesus is talking about giving the spirit, giving another helper. They're fearful. And that's good for us to remember. When we are fearful, the spirit is with us. He's indwelling us. He goes where we go. So we ought to um, remind ourselves of that, right? Okay, so that's some application. I hope I encourage you to think about that over lunch. Uh, the Spirit's work in Acts. So this is why I'm saying we, we probably should divide this into two sessions. We have five minutes to cover the Spirit's work in Acts. Now, in one sense, we're going we're gonna to talk more about the Spirit's work in the kind of just as we move out of this inaugural phase in the church. Uh, so we're going to come back and talk more specifically about spiritual gifts um, and, and how those continue and how they maybe don't continue in exactly the same way. We're going to talk about that more in a future session. Right now, I mainly want to focus on this thing we refer to as this, the baptism of the Spirit, which I believe happens four times in the book of Acts, okay? So, Acts chapter 2, go ahead and turn there. We'll, we'll read from there. I don't think we're going to read all these other passages, but um, Acts is, is a unique point in redemptive history, right? The, the church has just been born, and the gospel's about to spread, um, but it, it is unique. Uh, those who follow Jesus are now made up of all sorts of people, Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles. Uh, what do we know about all those people? Did they get along? No, they did not get along, right? Uh, coming out of the Old Covenant, the people of God was Jew, right? Now, you could, you could still come to the one true God, even if you weren't ethnically a Jew. That's true. My point was, though, it was kind of like you're like, well, I'm leaving behind my Gentile ways, and I'm, I'm in some ways identifying as a Jew here. Um, so think about it. We, we have the birth of this new covenant community, and God expects it to be a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And he wants the whole world to know that this is his people. So how is he going to make that clear? And I think that's what's happening in the baptism of the Spirit in the book of Acts. Um, I think that's what's going on. And, and so, what, so what I would add is, this is not repeated after the book of Acts. People walking around thinking they need some sort of baptism of the Spirit. There was a unique purpose in redemptive history, and we, it served that purpose. And so the, there's no longer this baptism of the Spirit going on. Because God has already publicly uh, demonstrated these are the people of God. These are the new covenant people, my people. And it's made up of not just Jews, but Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans, followers of John the Baptist, all these people who truly are connected to the Messiah are my people, right? So look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 1, they're told to go to Jerusalem and wait um, for the Spirit to fall on them. I think that's what we're referring to when we talk about baptism of the Spirit. There's a unique thing going on, a falling of the Spirit on them. So Chapter 2, we see the, the public unveiling, the first public unveiling of the church, that these are my people, the people tied to Jesus, okay? So look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And this is 50 days later, by the way, after the death resurrection of Jesus. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house that they were sitting in, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. 
Uh, now it goes on and says there are people from all these different nations who start hearing them speak in tongues and verse 8 and how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language so the unbelieving people from various places are hearing these people speak in their own languages and they're like wait you don't you're not from that area you don't speak that language right so there's something unique going on the spirits empowering tongues here is what we would refer to that as look at verse 12 and all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another what does this mean some mocked them, saying they are filled with new wine. Um, but Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. So Peter's going to answer the question, what's going on? What does this mean? Men of Judea, all of Jerusalem, let it be known to you. So he says, pay attention, they're not drunk. Um, verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So what we see happening here is he's basically saying uh, what Joel said, you're seeing the initial fulfillment of that. The initial fulfillment of what Joel's talking about is happening right now. The, the entrance into the last days is happening now. With the, and these are my people. And you can tell that because you see the Spirit working among them in powerful ways. I think that's what he's pointing to there. Um, so he pours out his Spirit and we see them being able to speak in tongues, do various things like that. Um, so what I'm saying is this is not a, um, every believer is going to have this, this baptism of the Spirit thing. By the way, it's very clear they're already believers before this happens, right? So this is not at their conversion. So you certainly can't say this just happens at someone's conversion at this point, right? Um, this is a unique thing going on. Well, if we kept going in chapter uh, 8, you would see the Samaritans becoming uh, officially divinely recognized as being part of this new covenant people of God. We see similar things happening to them. It says uh, uh, Peter and John come to them in chapter 8, verse uh, 16, for the Spirit had not fallen on any of them yet, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So I don't think, it's, it's not that they're not believers, they're already believers when John and Peter get there. This is not them receiving the Spirit's indwelling presence. This is a, they have not been baptized in the Spirit yet. Why is that significant? Because they're Samaritans, right? If you just leave it up to them to decide who's in the, who's, who represents God, they're not going to pick the Samaritans. How is the church going to be unified? God gives public, divine demonstration. These are part of the people, right? It's going to keep going in uh, Acts chapter 10. We see the Gentiles. The Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Um, and it's, and uh, the Jews are amazed by this. The Holy Spirit is poured out on them. Verse 46, they're speaking in tongues as well. So I will say in the Samaritans one, we don't see directly mentioned that they're speaking in tongues. Um, I don't know if they did or, or didn't, but we certainly see it with the Gentiles. Um, Acts chapter 19, the disciples of John the Baptist. Remember, it's interesting, John says, there's one who's coming after me, he's going to baptize with the Spirit. Right? So these guys, they've been following John, they haven't necessarily heard of all that happened with Jesus at this point, or they have because they're believing, but they don't know, you know, they, they haven't really connected in with the church yet because they're kind of off over here, church is doing its thing, and they receive a baptism of the Spirit. And uh, we see the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. So I think what we see is this is showing divine approval on the early church. God is saying, these are my people. You see them fulfilling what I promised in Joel. That's how you know they're my people. And my people are made up of all sorts of people who are connected. If they're believing in Jesus, they're connected to my people. We're not going to have a Jew church and a Gentile church and all these other things. 
Okay. Last thing I'll point out as we wrap up is you do see in Acts several times that people are full of the Spirit and they are empowered for ministry. Um, I think uh, we, we still will see in the New Covenant that there are times where the Spirit um, gives extra strength for particular tasks and things like that. So for example, to endure suffering. We're going to see they're in jail and they pray. Let me just read a little bit of that for you. Acts uh, 4, 29, they're praying they say, Lord, listen to all their threats against us. Uh, so, so think about, I mean, you'd be fearful. You, you would, you know, are you going to keep proclaiming the gospel? There's all these things, you know, going on. But they, they are, we're told in verse 31 in response, when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. I think you see the Spirit empowering boldness where you would not expect to find it is what's going on. So you see this in, in the book of Acts. So I think, I do think that type of f- being filled with the Spirit continues. And all we're really saying is walking in the Spirit, right? Saying, Spirit, I know you're with me. And then we pray. We talk to God. God, listen to their threats and power me, right? Or, or we see like with the uh, early deacons, they're told, you pick out men who are filled with the Spirit. They're full of the Spirit. That doesn't mean Find the ones who are indwelled. Everyone's indwelled with the Spirit if they're in the church, if they're truly a believer. I think what it means is you find guys who they are really walking with the Spirit. It is obvious that they're, they know the Spirit's in them and they're living that way. And it's coming out in the way they're living. There's, there's, there's a godliness that is growing and growing and growing in very clear and I would say even quick ways, right? Um, okay, so we could talk a lot more about Acts. There's a lot that goes on in the book of Acts, but uh, all I'm gonna say here is um, application we we need more and more courage. I think we're we're going to face more and more persecution, right? You you have to have a theology. I've heard one person say of being ready to lose your job. A theology of losing your job. That's true. That that, that is probably going to come more and more for Christians. We're not going around looking for it, but it's probably going to come. So I would say this idea of you know praying, God help us hear their threats and and help us. Um, we ought to know that the Spirit fills us. Right? He empowers us to boldness where we ordinarily would not have it. So I guess what I'm saying is, you may think about the future and be very fearful. Well, you don't have the grace for that moment. When you get to that moment, the Spirit fills us with the strength to do things that in our natural, spirit indwelt, but still natural self, could not see ourselves doing. Right? Giving faithful testimony to Christ. Um, continuing to rely on the Spirit. So we need to do that, and we need to rely on the Spirit for all the ministry we undertake. We said that a couple weeks ago, but that's true, right? We rely on the Spirit to fill us, to strengthen us as we do work in this new covenant church that he's placed us in. Well, let me go ahead and close this in prayer. God, we are so thankful uh, for the work of your Spirit. Um, God, we pray you'd help us. We recognize there are many areas where um, we stand to grow in our understanding of the Spirit's work. We pray that we would... um, by the Spirit's power, do what he came to do, which is glorify your Son, uh, that we would look to Christ, our Savior, and that we'd be empowered to do that, even this morning as we go into the worship service. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.